Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. You know, it's weirdly convenient or fitting, or I don't know what the actual, what the best word might be for this, that we're rolling the Wizards and then the Jazz, not back-to-back, we had a show in between, but in terms of our season review teams, the Wizards and the Jazz, from a, what were they trying to accomplish standpoint, they couldn't be farther from each other, but from a what actually happened standpoint, they're actually relatively close in a lot of ways. And I'll get into that in just a moment here on Fantasy NBA Today. Welcome to the show, everyone. Happy Wednesday to you all. May the 10th. Episode 23 of the offseason. If you can call it that, I know the playoffs are still going, but it's the fantasy offseason for us. We are now past the one mark, one month mark, I should say, fantasy offseason stuff. Wanted to uh, quickly assess something or or rehash something that we talked about on yesterday's show, which is Yahoo um, adjusting their pre-rank numbers. And on this show, I've, I've been trying to guess and figure out what the hell was going on. And uh, the great Josh Lloyd, friend of the program, friend of the program, I love that term. The great Josh Lloyd hit me with a DM on Twitter, and he was like, I'm pretty sure that it happens because Yahoo wants leagues that start up after fantasy football ends so they redo their board so that people can start an abridged fantasy basketball season in mid-december and that's actually the only explanation that that makes any sense so shout out josh thank you to the great red rock underscore b-ball we'll talk to josh on the show in a little bit don't worry probably as we get closer to the season because we're all just kind of flip-flopping our way through the offseason here but that does actually make a lot of sense because I was trying to think through it, like, there's no point in them adjusting their numbers to try to make it look better. That wouldn't do them any good, and they're not believable anyway. But they do need a new name for it. Because it ain't pre-rank if you're switching it in December. You're two months into the season at that point. That's post-rank. Pre-slash-post. Anyway, that exp- that explanation does, actually, does make a lot of sense. So that's what... Not that it really matters, I guess. Because it happened, and then we just deal with it. And again, a shout-out to the great Chris Coodley for sending us that screenshot of the October 17th ranks so we could actually get the true word pre-prefix pre-ranks. But let's talk about the Utah Jazz today, because I, I'm working in conjunction with the terrific writers over at Sports Ethos on Friday of last week. Wendell Quan Fun put out our jazz breakdown, so I'm running f- five days behind them. And uh, later on today, I believe the Raptors one is going to drop. And Mike Passador had the Mavs one on Monday. So, yeah, I'm, I'm way behind the, the eight ball here, but I, I'll, like, I'll play catch up. And I'll try to throw the jazz link from Wendell into the show description if you want to read his stuff, which is basically guaranteed to be better than what I'm doing here on the podcast. But the reason that I said the Jazz, I thought, had some fantasy similarities to the Washington Wizards is you had a handful of guys that put up big numbers. Now, there were more, certainly, on the Jazz than the Wiz. The Wizards had a couple of guys, mainly Porzingis, that had a big season, and then other guys had kind of okay seasons mixed in there. Whereas you look towards next year, you're, you're... kind of unsure 
of what the team actually wants to accomplish. For the Wizards, they're probably going to have to just sort of run it back. For the Jazz, they traded away a bunch of stuff at the trade deadline. They didn't go really into a full tank until the final, like, two-ish weeks of the season. But then as you look towards next year, you look at this team right now, and you say to yourself, okay, well, they overachieved, not something you could say about the Wizards, but they overachieved and they were in the playoff hunt for most of the season. That's the part that I thought was similar to Washington. And another part that I think is similar to Washington is as you look towards next year, we don't really know if the veterans are going to get the same playing time right now. On the Washington side, it's because they weren't very good despite having veterans, and there's probably a lot of forces at play kind of begging the Wizards to go lose some games and get a good draft pick, which they haven't, I I guess... I mean, they haven't had, like, a Mondo draft pick in quite some time. For the Jazz, you know they want draft picks. You know they want high picks, I should say, because they collected a bazillion of them in the Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert trades, and they'd be wise to try to get high picks when they have those. And then the teams that they got them from, they want those teams to lose as well. But anyway, you catch my meaning. They got plenty of picks, and so losing kind of, it certainly does assist but at the same time, you still have Lowry Markinen, Walker Kessler, Jordan Clarkson, Colin Sexton, Kelly Olynyk, all these guys on the roster that can actually play some ball. How many games can you reasonably lose when... Now, Clarkson could opt out. I think he has a player option for 14 or $15 million, and maybe he can go get that same amount of money on a longer contract somewhere else, but... Regardless, Sexton, they signed for a number of years. Markinen's still around for a couple of years. Olenek's got one more. Kessler's on a rookie deal. Ochai Abaji is on a rookie deal. Forgot to mention him. They, they want to see what he can bring to the table. THT's got a player option. I don't think that he's a guy that's necessarily moving the needle for that team, but could also be back. So that makes this team a little bit frightening because there is such dramatic uncertainty around whether or not those guys are going to get to play out the season. Now, one of the things that we should definitely look into is what do the Jazz get by losing? Because this year, a lot of their picks were coming from other places. They've been acquiring them. And... You know, there's, there are often scenarios where a team cares more about what their opponent is doing, how many games their opponent is losing, as opposed to whether they have their own. So now you're looking at the 2024 NBA draft. Now, the Jazz had their own pick. They have their own pick in this coming draft. They have Minnesota's unprotected first. They have Philly's unprotected first. But that's not what we're talking about now. Next year, Utah has their own first-round pick. And if it falls outside the top 10, the Thunder get it. So 2024 is actually the most important year for the Jazz to lose ballgames. In 2025, they have their own pick. No matter where it falls, they also have one from the Cavs and another one from the uh, Wolves and so on and so forth. But this is the one where if it falls, they don't get it anymore. And you could argue that Utah, like, the best situation for them would be to go get some, you know, top three, top four picks for a couple years in a row. That would be the, the kind of the fastest way to rebuild around some of these guys. But they might not have Markkinen at that point, and 
He's shown himself to be a very good basketball player. And look, I don't know that you guys need me to necessarily say like, oh, this is what these different guys did this season. We'll get into a couple of them because I, I think this this sort of planning arc is, in my estimation, the most important thing that you can handicap when it comes to the Utah Jazz. And to me, when I see that the Jazz could lose their pick if it falls outside the top 10, and this 2024 is really kind of like the only year where they don't have a crap ton of picks, because they've got three firsts in 2025, two in 2026, they got four, up to four in 2027. So they're just, they're, they're piling them up. You could also argue that maybe they don't go into the full tank until later on. You know, maybe they go into the full tank when they assume that Cleveland or L.A. or Minnesota, maybe one of those teams gets worse in like two or three years. Lakers probably do. Maybe. They might retool. But maybe they go, they try to go for the rebuild then. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Ooh, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. But it just, it feels like, given what we saw, especially at the tail end of this season, and especially what they did at the trade deadline, which was moving away Mike Conley, the guy who's steering the boat, great veteran leader at that point guard spot, moving off of Beasley, moving off of Vanderbilt, kind of clearing the decks for Walker Kessler to get in there and play. This next season feels like the one where the Jazz might just sort of, you know, not play their guys all that much. And perhaps it's not fair to say, you know, quote, what is all that much? But Larry Markin had played 66 games this year. I feel like that's probably the target. That's like the high watermark for next season. Walker Kessler played in 74 games this year. They won games when Markkinen was in there. They needed him to be out. They needed Clarkson to be out for them to feel comfortable losing basketball games. So, yeah, maybe maybe Kessler does play most of the games next season. But it's hard to look at this roster and see that they only keep their first-round pick if it's in the top 10, meaning they basically need to be like a sixth or worse record in case teams jump up and everybody else comes down. They don't they don't want to get pushed too far back of that. And sure, you could make a run at a play-in spot and still have the 10th worst record in the NBA, which I think is kind of basically what happened to them this year. They don't have to be horrendous all season long, but it would be very unwise for them to go try to make the back end of the playoffs get spanked and then not have a first-round pick and be sort of 
right back in the same boat year over year. You got to have something to show for it if you're a middling basketball team. Doesn't have to be a top three pick, but it's got to be better than like 17th or, you know, whatever might happen in that scenario or none. None. That's a worst case scenario. And you know, Danny Ainge, look, he did every, he didn't even care that he was helping the Lakers when he was moving off of guys at the deadline and adding some more first-round picks down the, down the road a little bit. He knows what we kind of have to guess at a little bit. But if Clarkson goes and seeks money elsewhere, that gets one veteran off the books. They could very easily play Colin Sexton's 62 ball games. They could very easily play Markinen 62 ball games. They could very easily play Walker Kessler 60 something ball games. And not even really bat an eye about it. Give Ochai more playing time. See if THT comes back. It just it scares the living bejesus out of me. Now, on the Games Caparoto side, if guys fall far enough, I think you'd certainly take a look at him. Like a Walker Kessler has the makings of somebody that could be underdrafted from a per-game standpoint. He was number 57 this year on the per-game side, and he was far better than that when you wipe out the first, whatever it was, month and a half or so, uh, give or take, maybe a little bit more than that, month and a half, two months, where he wasn't the main guy. Second half of the season, he was basically a top 30 fantasy play. I mean, he was a behemoth. Best fantasy player on the team. He outperformed Larry Markkinen over the last 20 games this year. That's not even considering the fact that Markkinen sat for a bunch of those. Kessler was a bona fide mega stud the second half of the season. And the fear, the only fear in my mind with him is shutdown stuff. Like, there's nobody coming for his job in Utah. He's the center of their future. Dude averaged 12 points, 11 boards, and 3 blocks the last month and a half. And he was very comfortably in the twos in blocks over that stretch. Very good rebounder. He basically was doing his best Rudy Gobert impersonation at a fraction of the cost. Way younger. And not a guy that had issues getting along with his teammates. Now on the head-to-head side, I don't know how many of these guys you could take the plunge on because that stuff is kind of hanging over your head. I was fine with taking the plunge on guys this last season. And I know what you're thinking. Dan, aren't you being a a tad hypocritical here when you were afraid of a Utah Jazz shutdown this year and you were totally fine taking Kelly Olynyk and Larry Markkinen and Mike Conley? Well, here's the thing. You were able to get Markkinen at, like, pick 80 in a lot of drafts, and he profiled as more of a top 50 per game guy based on what sort of prior year metrics would have indicated. He just absolutely blew past that with a 50% field goal clip on a higher volume than we could have ever expected and ended up in the top 20 range. But he was still going to be a hit, even if he just sort of stuck on career numbers with a bigger role. Kelly Olynyk, he was getting drafted in the 120 range, and he profiled as someone that could probably be inside the top 100, and that's roughly where he ended up with some slight depressions in his numbers due to injury. And Mike Conley was kind of the same thing. He was going outside the top 100. He profiled as someone that I thought could be kind of in that 80 range, but like Olynyk, he ended up kind of around 100 and actually made sense in a lot of formats even if they got shut down I didn't care I thought basically in any format roto or head-to-head if you could squeeze the first half of the season or more even you'd get to the all-star break that's actually more than half 
if you could squeeze the first, I don't know what what how many games is that before the All Star break? Like fifty something, about fifty games before the break, roughly. Out of all three of those guys, at a much higher per game clip than their ADP, that would have made a lot of sense. And then it ended up being gravy. But when you look at this next year, now Conley's not on the team anymore, so you can take him off that shelf. But you look at this coming season, Larry Markkinen's going to cost a whole lot more to draft next year than he did this one. He was going around 80 this past year. He's probably going to go in the, I don't know, what do we think, 40s this coming season? That's a, that's a hefty pill to swallow. Especially when you look at the numbers and say, okay, dude shot 48% in Chicago, 44 and a half in Cleveland, and then up to 50 this last year. Can he stay at 50? Three-point percentage was fine. That was pretty close to his career mark. But the 50% was a massive, massive jump. The volume probably holds. Not super concerned about that. Steals and blocks weren't too far off. Rebounds was kind of what you'd expect if he was playing 30-some-odd minutes per ball game, which, you know, that's where he got to. Um, maybe a little bit better than expected. But with the field goal percent as a, a possible knock on Markinen, and then the price, is it enough? So you got to do a little bit of math there. Well, this last season, per game was 19. His totals rank was actually 21. Because he played in 66 games, that's remarkably close to what most of the top fantasy players were playing this year, so he didn't get passed by too many guys. But let's say that that drops into the low 60s this coming season, and let's say his field goal percent comes back down to 48. So per game-wise, he's not top 20, he's more like you know top 25, top 30 range, and the missed games are a little bit higher. Where does that put him in totals? Probably late 30s, early 40s. So is there value on marketing if he if that's where he's going next year? Kelly Olynyk, I mean, it seemed like they were actually comfortable playing him even when they were in the tank. So maybe he's another one you could snap up after 100. Walker Kessler's the one that I'm staring down here and thinking, is there a chance we we go down that road? Uh, I don't think that I'm doing the Abaji thing next year. I don't think that I would do the Colin Sexton thing. Although if if Clarkson is gone, I might be more inclined because then the, the usage jumps back up again, so maybe there's a Colin Sexton Avenue here. But even at full bore, Sexton is more like a top 90 kind of play. That's like full-time starters minutes running a lot of the offense kind of dude. Uh, but, you know, not completely off the table. But Walker Kessler's the one that you can look at and say, okay, well, do, were people did people catch up enough to what he was in the second half of the season? Is he going to get drafted like near 60? Or is he going to go right by Markin in near 40? And that, to me, is where you're maybe going to find a little bit of value with Utah looking towards next season. We'll see what they do in the offseason as well. I, I don't see this team like bringing in a bunch of guys that are going to need the basketball. Not when they are likely starting to lean younger. But we shall see. So just to sort of put a bow on that, Kessler's one where I'm very interested in his ADP, but I feel like there might be a little bit of an avenue, perhaps more on the Roto than the head-to-head side if you're worried about the game stuff. I'm guessing Markinen is going to be a tiny bit overpriced. Uh, Olenek probably could be a look on the Roto side. It might just replicate what we saw this last year. Clarkson, I'm thinking he probably ends up somewhere else, but I guess we'll see. 
you know, maybe he exercised. I feel like he should be able to get that amount of money for a longer stretch, but I guess you never know. Someone's going to need a bench gunner that's not a young team that's not making a, a play at it. And then I've got to think that Colin Sexton does more this coming year, but I do want to like kind of point out again, please try to remember what Colin Sexton was before the injury and before you know playing sparingly this season. And you have to go all the way back to uh, like two and a half years ago or so where he averaged 35 minutes a game with Cleveland, 24 points, three boards, four and a half assists, and a steal on 47 and 81, the splits. And that put him just inside the top 100. The turnovers were a little bit high. Maybe those could come down. Now, maybe the percentages improve a tiny bit for him over all this, this time, but... He's not like, Colin Sexton's not a guy who has the fantasy profile to be a top 40, top 50 kind of guy. So we'll see where he goes. I guess there's a path where you can be like, hey, maybe I can get him like around 90 or 100 and you get some scoring late. That's probably not going to completely obliterate you. This again, somewhat dependent on on Clarkson being done, but also understanding that they're not going to push him too hard when they got to make sure they keep their own pick. All right, we got playoffs, ladies and gentlemen. You guys know that I've been laser-focused on this Lakers-Warriors series. Warriors favored by 7, total of 226. We'll start with the late one here and work our way back to the earlier one. Uh, The total of 226 to me feels maybe a tad on the high side. Uh, If only because it feels like the teams have kind of, I don't say exhausted their offensive tricks, but by Game 5, Game 6... Teams kind of know what the other one is doing. And if they're well-coached and have the right personnel, they can usually figure out a way to snuff it out. And you've started to see that in this series. Game one, everybody just threw their fastball. It was higher scoring. Lakers pulled it out in the end. Game two, Warriors made some adjustments. They got more spacing out there. Lakers were sort of not really ready for what the Warriors were going to throw at Anthony Davis. They didn't have the proper plan in place and so the Lakers got slowed down the Warriors played well game three back in LA was somewhat anomalous the Lakers didn't change stuff that much between games two and three they just had AD more involved and they hit outside shots that was a big deal Warriors didn't really hit outside shots Lakers made a good adjustment on defense by getting Anthony Davis out of that high pick and roll and then in game four the Warriors brought him back into the high pick and roll by inserting Gary Payton the second into the starting lineup, uh, forcing Anthony Davis to guard either Peyton, which is kind of, I think, what the Lakers ended up doing. Then he made good decisions in the short roll, and the Warriors got a lot, actually, of layups early in Game 4. Lakers made some little tweaks to take that away as the game went on by moving Anthony Davis over to Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins, not as good in the short roll. Not that great of a passer. I don't know that. I'm breaking any news here on the show by saying Andrew Wiggins not that great of a passer, but you saw it in that game in Game 4. Uh, Draymond Green and Gary Payton the second were the guys that the Warriors trusted making decisions in the short roll, and once the Lakers moved Anthony Davis off, they started to bring Wiggins over to screen, but he was not as accomplished in making those moves. So... Late in the ball game, the Lakers then changed things up even a little bit more. They started switching screens 
to take away Steph, basically. And then say, okay, Steph is getting tired. We're not going to let him create anymore. We're going to go make him do it himself. They switched Anthony Davis on to Curry, and then Steph ended up taking 30 shots, and basically, like, he was the entire Warriors offense. Now, well, I'm sure the, that the Dubs have something in the in up their sleeves for this ball game, some way to keep Anthony Davis away from the paint to try to take a little bit of the pressure off of Steph Curry. But look, they can't. you can't reinvent the wheel in the fifth game of the playoffs after you've been running whatever it is all season long. There just isn't that much left to do. And on the other side, this I don't want this to sound like I'm like picking on the Warriors for not having that much left. The Lakers don't have that many tweaks they can make on offense either. Lakers offensively, I thought, looked pretty disjointed in Game 4. They were very fortunate to win it. They kind of hung in there by making slightly harder shots than the Warriors, and then in the fourth quarter, the Lakers sort of pulled out their last move, which was, we're going to get Steph switched on to LeBron, and we're just going to keep going to it until the Warriors do something to try to take it away. And the Warriors, strangely, really didn't do anything to take it away. So Braun just kept driving on Steph, backing him in, wearing him out, finding Lonnie Walker, typically, or getting fouled, and the Lakers clawed their way back into that ballgame. I'm sure the Warriors took time over the last two days to figure out how to keep Steph from getting trapped on LeBron James. That is not a matchup that they want. It gets Steph, it exhausts him, it gets him in foul trouble. Lakers, I'm sure, are going to try it early in this one to see what the Warriors are going to do about it. But here's the thing. What's the next move? What's left? The defenses are going to take stuff away early in this ballgame. The teams are going to have to have their next tweak ready to go. I don't think the Warriors are going to get as many layups as they got in Game 4. I don't think the Lakers are going to have as many looks with LeBron on Steph as they got in Game 4. The way that this ballgame ends up in the Warriors' favor is if the Lakers don't full throttle it which we've seen them do. They didn't do it in Game 5 in Memphis. They didn't do it in Games 2 in either of their two playoff series so far. So there's a very real chance that the Lakers kind of dawdle their way through this game and just sort of see what the Warriors have as far as moves go left in the tank. Maybe that allows the Warriors to win and cover. But I kind of like the under. Because I just, I don't believe that the teams have a, a magic trick left to get super-duper offensive looks. So I like the under Lakers-Warriors, or I certainly lean that way. I don't much care for the side. I think the Warriors probably win this game, uh, but I, I couldn't tell you how much. I would lean to the Warriors to cover uh, if you guys forced me to pick one because we've seen the Lakers kind of, again, half-ass it a bit in these situations where they have a little bit of breathing room. Heat-Knicks. My analysis of this one is uh, pretty flimsy compared to the last one. My analysis of this one is the Knicks have looked like they are overmatched. From a personnel standpoint, from a, an effort standpoint, from a Jimmy Butler standpoint, and I have trouble doing anything that suggests I would fade the Heat. I, I can't do it. I can't fade the Heat. They've been too good through these playoffs so far. They just are, and it's, again, a simplistic analysis, but they're just on a roll. Defenses just continue to lock in a little bit more. We squeezed out a narrow win on our over lean in the last ballgame, and then they brought the total up by about a point one game to the next uh, because they've got the number right on the money. They'll just split the tickets there on the, the total. I don't think odds makers have any issue about it. It's, it's pretty well locked in. 
Um, no feeling on the total, slight lean to the Heat. Uh, if you like the Heat, maybe you just take them on the money line. Expect them to wrap this thing up. I don't know. I'd think about it. Did I do any promo today? I don't think I did any promo. You guys got lucky on this one. All right, let's wedge in a little bit here at the end of the, the show. I'm sure some of you have turned this thing off already. Please do check out Wendell's uh, Utah Jazz breakdown over at sportsethos.com. I'll try to get the link out to all of you guys in the show description if I can remember because my brain is sort of a mush pile these days. Um, also, hit me up if you want to be a part of what we're doing here at Sports Ethos. I keep forgetting to take some time on a show to talk about um, the open podcast spots on some really cool pre-existing properties but i guess that's a task for the morrow for now find me on twitter at dan basper sportsethos.com and ethos fantasy bk over on twitter and uh for the moment i will just wish you all a lovely wednesday i know easy peasy and out we go i'm dan basper slater for now <laughs>